Good morning, everyone. I'm very thankful to have the honor of reading the scripture this morning. So today we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. So when the king had settled into his palace, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, the king said to the prophet Nathan, look, I am living in a cedar house while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. So Nathan told the king, go and do all that is on your mind, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go to my servant David and say, this is what the Lord says, are you to build me a house to dwell in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not dwelt in a house. Instead, I have been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever spoken a word to one of the tribal leaders of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, asking, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? So now this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you like that of the greatest on the earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them, so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them, as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel." I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals, but my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. And Nathan reported all these words and this entire vision to David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jackson for delivering the word to us today. My name is Justin. I'm one of the ministers here at Sunnybrook, and it is a joy to get to be with you on this fine Sunday. Um, I have been away for a bit in Ghana, Africa. It's great to be with you here. One of the main reasons I know I'm back, no slam dancing in the front at the beginning of the service. There was a lot of that. Uh, at, the, at the churches that we worship with in Ghana. Um, and it was a great time. We're going to talk a little bit about that during our prayer time uh, for those of you who are curious about that trip. Um, I don't know how you approach today uh, this thing right here. Uh, this thing, the Bible, not my Bible, but the Bible, how you come to it. Um, this is a, a book for me that I would sit in these pews and hear other people talk about it, maybe open it up when I had to at a camp or something, uh, but it was not until I was 20 years old uh, that the Bible truly came to life for me, uh, became the life-giving Word of God that it's meant to be. Um, I took that Bible with me everywhere I went for a short amount of time, and even still, 13-ish years later, 
Every time that I open this Bible, these scriptures, I learn. I relearn. I'm shown new things. I'm a firm believer. And if you've sat under any of my teachings of how to study the Bible, this will sound familiar to you. But the more we are consistent with this, opening it up, the more curious we are about these scriptures, the more we're willing to do the hard work, the more the Spirit of God will divinely illuminate this word to us, help us to understand it. All all those things working together, our consistency in the word, our curiosity of the word, our hard work to do the work that is needed to understand this Bible, which was written over a period of like 1,500 years by more than 40 different authors in a variety of different circumstances. This Bible that was written by real people to a very specific audience for a specific purpose just means that this Bible wasn't written to me and it wasn't written to you, but it was written for me and it was written for you because the reason God inspired this book, the reason God used people across the centuries to write down this book and hand us this book is because God wanted to reveal himself to you and to me. And so even though it was written in a lot of different cultural backgrounds, even though it is quite old, it is attested to through manuscript evidence and archaeology, and not only those things, but this book, this Bible, this collection of books, is actually a pretty cohesive story. In fact, it's a a unified message that all of it leads to a guy named Jesus. Every bit of it. From beginning to end, it may be collections of writings by different people, but it's, it's cohesive, it's, it's unified. It can be difficult to open any one passage and maybe understand it, but the more you're in it, the, the more you do the hard work of consistency and curiosity, the more you allow the Spirit to illuminate the Word of God in your heart, you begin to see these themes that stream from beginning to end. And the reason we've done this series, the reason these pictures are up here on the screen and on the stage is because we believe that this word is pretty important, that it is God's word for us, that it reveals his character, that it actually reveals the part of his plan that he thinks you and I, who are made in his image, need to know. It's a Bible that says of its own accord that it was inspired by the Spirit, written through the creativity and the personalities of those who put the ink to paper, that it's actually living and active, that it never returns void, that it always does what God intends for it to do. It's powerful. Brother James says that it's actually able to save our souls. Why? Because it's some kind of magical incantation if you read it at the right place, at the right time, in the right way. Magical things will happen to you in your life? No. It's powerful because it leads you to the one who is the source of all power. It can save your soul because it leads you to the one who can redeem and save your soul. It's life-giving because it leads you to the source of life. 
And so we don't do this series just because it's a fun exercise to, to look at specific themes and important chapters from this book. We do it because we believe it contains the very words of life, that it is one cohesive, unified message that leads to Jesus. And Jesus is the king. I uh, played a little game with some of our uh, friends this morning. I don't know if this is very self-evident what this is. Um, treasure box, uh, maybe like the thing that the priest put on their chest. No, this is, this is a crown. I unfortunately have too much hair at my current state to put it on my head. Uh, but this is a crown. Um, and it represents God's promise to David that from David would come a dynasty, a house, a, a, a nation, a king, a kingdom that would not end. And even though we're in 2 Samuel chapter 7, this isn't something that just popped on the scene a quarter of the way through the Bible. Actually, it's something we can see all the way back at the beginning. And so what I want to do this morning is just take you on a bit of a journey again, looking at a new theme, a new highlight, a new way that God weaves something through the scriptures that's important to him, that reveals parts of him and his plan that he intends for you to submit your life, to give your full allegiance to a particular king. And that starts all the way back in the beginning. So a lot of these texts will not be on the screen. You have two options. One, sit back and listen attentively. Number two, if you're like, you've got to write it down, like there's something in you, you're a type A, you've got to be the note taker, that's fine. Go ahead, write it on down. That's totally okay. We also record these sermons and put them online if you want to just sit and listen and be attentive and learn what the Spirit might have for you and go back later. We also have a podcast called Consider This, where each week we're going through and diving deeper into the things we couldn't talk about in this sermon. Uh, the good thing is, Ryan provided enough content last week for me to get all the way back from Africa listening to his sermon, and we didn't have to have a podcast, actually, but it was great um, to hear about God's plan through a mountain and through stone. So, king and a kingdom. Uh, you probably have heard it by now, maybe you've memorized it, but in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the seen and the unseen, the things that are up there and the things that are down here. And in this creation, he put a garden with trees. One tree was the source of life, and one tree was the source of knowledge of good and evil. And God made a man and a woman and said, one thing not to do, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not your time yet to understand these things. There may come a time, but it's not yet. Listen to my words. God said, you're made in my image. You're going to represent me in a unique way. And what I want you to do is to be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over it. You see all the created things that I have that aren't made in my image? You're to rule over those things. You are my co-rulers. You are my sub-rulers. I am the capital R ruler, and you are lowercase r rulers. You are my unique representative. You have authority here on this earth to do my will. Now go and do it. It doesn't take long, though, 
for Adam and Eve to mess things up. And all of a sudden, on the scene comes this snake. We, we really don't know where this snake comes from, why he's there, but it comes very obvious that he does not like God or the ways of God. And the very first things out of his mouth is, did God really say? Did God really say? Just, maybe you just need to doubt God's word. Not listen to his command and do your own thing. Besides, if you do this, you'll be like God. And so Adam and Eve take a bite of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, and sin enters the story. Death enters the story. Decay, disease, brokenness, chaos come into the story. And yet even in the midst of this brokenness, even in the midst of this sin, God, who is full of love and ever abounding in grace, pours out goodness. And he looks at the woman, he looks at the snake, snake, I will put hostility between your offspring and her offspring. And then he looks at Eve and says, I will send one of your offspring and he will crush the head of the snake, though the snake will bite your heel. Though there will be a mortal blow to your offspring, Eve, he will win. He will crush the head of the snake and he will deliver you out of this evil, out of this brokenness, out of this chaos. And God chooses from his own will and prerogative a man named Abram and he says, you are to leave your homeland and go to a land I will yet show you. And he says to Abram and to his wife Sarai that you are going to be Famous. Your name's going to be great. You're going to have lots of descendants. I know you're old, but I'm going to give you a descendant, and from your descendant, there will be many descendants, as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And as I bless you, so all the nations will be blessed through you. Through you. I will send a descendant, an offspring, a blessing, and through this descendant, will come a deliverance, a blessing for all nations, for all people. And then on the mountain, God tests Abraham's faith, and Abraham's faith is proven true by his willingness to obey the commands of God, even willingness to submit his own son to God. But God, who does not ask us to sacrifice our own children like the other gods, says, no, I will provide a substitute. I see that your faith is genuine because you have obeyed my words, and here is a sacrificial ram. We have some stories in the Bible that we don't have pictures for because we just had to draw a line somewhere, okay? Sue us, don't sue us. Um, we just had to choose. We had to choose. God, God raises up a deliverer named Moses, and even though God's people were enslaved in Egypt, he powerfully and wonderfully and miraculously lets them go toward the land that he had promised to Abraham. Promised to Jacob, promised to, to Isaac and to Jacob, and in this journey, rather than trusting the God who had just powerfully delivered them, they complain, they rebel, they follow their father and mother, Adam and Eve, and they sin against God. And so God looks at them and says, 
you don't get to go into the promised land. You don't get to experience the rest that I was willing to give you. You're going to die in this wilderness. And in this wilderness, that journey that was supposed to take a couple of weeks, you're going to die because you're going to be here 40 years. And your children will get to enter the land. And then after giving the law for the first time to God's people through Moses, this generation eventually dies. And in Deuteronomy, the Deuteronomos, the second law giving to this new generation, this next generation, Moses stands and proclaims some pretty important truths, reiterates the Ten Commandments, but then says many, many other things. You see your parents? What happened to them? It didn't go well for them because they didn't trust and obey God as their ruler and as their king. But if you obey, if you listen and you respond appropriately, things will go well for you in the land. Just listen and just obey. And it seems like for a good while they heeded the warning because after Moses himself didn't get to go into the land because of his own brokenness and sin, he died. And then Joshua came and was the leader of God's people. And God going before them, fighting for them, delivering them from this group of people in the land God had promised, brings God's people into the promised land. Uh, It's a pretty questionable portion of the scripture for today's niceties, for today's own understanding, this conquest. How could God do such a thing? Number one, not a good idea to question God in such a way. Number two, you have no idea the amount of wickedness that God put up with for how long. God shares just a few different stories of the wickedness of this people that he delivered out of the land, this promised land that he gave to Israel. That they would sacrifice willingly their children to their gods, that they would burn them in fires, that they would rape and pillage and destroy anything that they set their heart to. They were a wicked and an evil people. And God delivered Israel into the land that they used to occupy. And you would think that they had finally accomplished what they had always wanted. Finally, they had fulfilled, God had fulfilled his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And they were going to rest in this land, but no. Judges, the book of Judges comes and we see this cycle where God has to punish his people because they are not obeying him. Rather than being this set apart, this holy, this unique nation and kingdom of priests, they began to whore themselves out and worship all the gods around them. They began to be like all the nations when they were supposed to be unlike any other nation because God had set them apart. God had chosen them. And so God, because he loves them like his own children, he disciplines his people And he sends the surrounding nations that they wanted to be like to conquer them for a time. To overpower them for a time. And then after they had had enough and they began to realize their mistakes, they cried out to God and said, God, I am so sorry, forgive us. And because God is a good God, faithful to his promises, he did. And he would rise up these temporary military leaders, these judges, And then they would experience this time of peace. And then the cycle would start all over again and again and again and again. And then there's this little book called Ruth. Ruth, this Moabite woman. By the way, the Moabites, if you read the first five books of the Bible, are not painted well. 
There are wicked people, idolatrous people, sinful, evil people. And this Moabite woman had married into the Israelites. And her husband had died, and she had this opportunity where she could either go back to her homeland, to her people, or she could stay. And she decides to stay. A pretty powerful uh, verse, actually, in Ruth chapter 1, as she looks at her mother-in-law named Naomi. And she says things like, your God will be my God. Where you go, I will go. Where you die, there I will die. I'm not going anywhere because I've seen your God, I've seen my gods. I've seen your people, and I've seen my people, and I'd rather stay because there's something unique. And we get a little glimpse that the God who made all things even shows his grace and his kindness to people like Moabites who are wicked and rebellious from beginning to end. And as she turns her heart toward him, he shows her mercy. And at the very end of Ruth, there's this small genealogy that Ruth gets married to this guy named Boaz. And Boaz and her have this kid named Obed. And Obed has this kid named Jesse. And Jesse has this kid named David. Enter the book of Samuel. Now, we see it in our Bible as First and Second Samuel, but it probably would have been one cohesive writing. Um, it's a book that starts and ends things. It ends the reign of the judges, and it begins the reign of the kings. And not for a reason you might expect. <laughs> uh, not because, well, that was God's plan. Remember, God said, I was going to send, I, I made you to be rulers, and then I was going to send kings from the line of Abraham and Sarah, that I was going to send kings from the line of Jacob, that I was going to send a ruler with a scepter in his hand from the line of Judah. No, you want a king because you want to be like all the other nations. Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. God promises that he will send a king from the line of Judah. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 7 and 8, we see... Israel, God's people who had seen God do so many things time and time again, decide, I want to be like the other nations, and we want a king. We want a king who will fight for us, who will go before us, who will judge us. All the while, God says, yeah, I've been doing it. I'm your king. Samuel, Samuel's distraught by this. He, they've rejected me, God. What have I done? And God looks at Samuel and says, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've done what their father, Adam and Eve, and everybody since has done. They've rejected me. They've seen my works. They've heard my word, and they've said, no, thank you. They haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. So give them over to what they want, which God is in the habit of doing. Giving people over to what they want. Could God have stopped Adam and Eve from taking a bite? Sure, you can do all things. Did he? No. Because God is in the habit of giving people over to what they want. They wanted a king, fine, give them a king. And you know what they're going to get? They're going to get horrible kings. Kings that are selfish. Kings that are wicked. Kings that will take all their property in taxes. Kings that will acquire for themselves lots of wealth. Lots of wives, lots of chariots, trying to make themselves independent and self-sufficient, not in need of the God who is meant to rule, to be king. 
And there were very few good kings during the kingdom that God established, that allowed them to have established. In fact, the very first king that we see is a guy named Saul, a tribe of Benjamin. And you want to know why they chose Saul? Was it because of his great godly character? Was it because of his great knowledge of the law and obedience to it? No. They looked around at the nations. They saw how scary they looked. They looked back at their own people and they found one who was tall. He looks like he could beat him up because this is what guys do. You just walk into a room, could I take him or could he take me? Okay, now I know. And they all looked at Saul and they saw a guy that they thought could take out the people around them. As you might guess, it didn't work out well. Saul, though he is anointed by God, is almost like an act of discipline on the people. And they experience his foolishness and his sin. Eventually, Samuel has to remove this blessing that God had given to Saul. Saul makes a series of mistakes, direct disobedience, rash decisions and vows, and God removes his blessing from Saul, and he says, I am going to choose one who is a man after my own heart, and I will anoint him as king. Saul was first, but second was this man after God's own heart, this descendant of Ruth, this descendant of Judah, this descendant of Isaac and Jacob and Abraham and Adam and Eve, and his name was David. And David was a shepherd boy, the youngest son of Jesse. There was nothing about him that made him, should have made him king, other than that he had a heart after God's own. And so God established him anointed him. The rest of 1 Samuel tells of this conflict between Israel and the nations around them. It tells this conflict between Saul and God, Saul and Samuel, Saul and David. Saul multiple times tries to kill David, but God wouldn't allow it. And we see the character of David shine in a much, a very distinct way, much different than the character of Saul. And then 2 Samuel shows the reign of David. David's anointed First in 1 Samuel 16, he's anointed a second time in 2 Samuel, and then a third time in 2 Samuel as king over all of Israel. He was the anointed one, the Messiah, the Messiah. The Greeks translate that word as a Christ. David was this anointed one by God, this Messiah, this Christ. And through David, God made a promise Look up on the screen and you can see the breakdown of this uh, great covenant that God made that Jackson read earlier. You can hear some of the similarities between it and previous covenants. The first, I will make your name great, God says to David. You've already heard this to all of the patriarchs. God God reiterates, I'm going to make your name great. God continues that through David. I will give my people a place. This is something that's already been promised partially realized but not fully realized and in this place you're to be planted and you will not be disturbed and then I will give you rest from all your enemies in this place next part of the promise is that I will make you a house 
If you know your Second Samuel very well, you know that during this time when David began to reign, he, he brought the ark to Jerusalem, Zion, the city of David, where God's presence was going to dwell in a unique way, where he had a, his own palace built and where he was experiencing peace at all his borders. And he looked around and he thought, how can I live in such an amazing place? And God's ark, God's presence, God's dwelling live in a tent, in a tabernacle. What I want to do is to build a great house, a great temple to God as a thank you for how God has blessed me. Nothing sounds too wrong with that. That's a pretty normal thing to do, especially in their time. But God says, no. No, not you, David. I'm fine with this, even though I can't be contained by an ark or a building. But in order that my name may be praised and my name may be great, I will allow this. But you're not going to be the one to do it. It will actually be one of your descendants. You can't do it because you've got blood on your hands. You're too busy waging war to be someone who I can allow to build my house. And so God says, your son will build the house for my name. The son was Solomon. You remember Solomon comes from this lady named Bathsheba. Bathsheba was the one that David committed adultery with and then eventually killed her husband Uriah. Yeah, one of those sons from her. He's the one who's going to build the temple and I will be his father. And then lastly, that your house, your throne, your kingdom will be forever. They will have no end. And this is the promise. Some of those promises fulfilled in Solomon. He ended up building the temple. We're going to talk more about that next week. But if you go back and you look, some of these hadn't been, haven't been fulfilled. I will give my people a place to be planted. Exile will come. You're going to be uprooted. There's still something yet to come. You'll not be disturbed. Well, no, there's a lot of disruption as the countries around them make war on them because of their foolishness and sinfulness. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Nah, there ain't no rest here. Actually, Solomon's own son divides the kingdom in two. And then we see this long line of mostly horrible kings that come from David and Solomon's lines. There's no rest. There's lots of disruption. And they're definitely not planted. There's something yet to be fulfilled that David... Solomon and all the kings after him didn't do. Actually, the prophets talk a lot about this. Psalm chapter 2, David actually functioned as both a prophet and a king. Psalm chapter 2 says this in verse 6, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter and you will shatter them like pottery. Psalm 110 this is the declaration of my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, from Jerusalem. Rule over your surrounding enemies. Isaiah, 
in chapter 9 says this, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Eternal Father. The dominion of his will be vast and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. That's not a promise that was fulfilled in David. It wasn't a promise fulfilled in Solomon or any of their descendants. In chapter 11, it says this, Then a shoot, a small branch, life where there was once death and things cut off, a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. Jesse the father of David, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. He will kill the wicked and command from his lips. Righteousness will be a belt around his hips. Faithfulness will be a belt around his waist. And then there will be peace, and there will be rest. This wasn't fulfilled in David, wasn't fulfilled in Solomon, wasn't fulfilled by any of those long lists of kings we see in the book of Kings or the book of Chronicles or the prophets. It was going to be somebody else that they foretold. Ezekiel looks ahead to it in chapter 34, verse 10. This is what the Lord God says, look, I am against the shepherds of Israel. Israel, I've continued to give you leaders, and you leaders continue to not shepherd the flock. You don't care about them. You care about yourself. You continue to follow your ancestors who complained about me in Egypt. You continue to follow Adam and Eve and eat the fruit. You continue to rebel against me, and I'm against you, shepherds. I will demand my flock from those shepherds and prevent them from shepherding the flock. The shepherds will no longer feed themselves for I will rescue my flock from their mouths so that they will not be food for them. For this is what the Lord God says. See, I, I, God, I myself will search for my flock and look for them. And a shepherd, as a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day he is among his scattered flock. So I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from the places where they have been scattered on the day where clouds and total darkness come. Do you hear it? Did you start to feel the anticipation, what the people were longing for, that they were made to be rulers, to subdue the earth, that the kings were going to come from their line, that they were going to be deliverers, that there was going to be one who would sit on the throne and bring rest and who would bring peace and who would bring no disruption but give them an eternal place? Can you hear it? Because it's all throughout the Old Testament. It's not hidden under a rock. It's right there. And when you start to get a glimpse of these truths, you start to understand things like Matthew chapter 1. I don't know about you, but I will confess... I too have skipped the genealogy of Matthew. Let us all confess before the Lord today that he may heal our land and bless our church, okay? I have skipped the genealogy, but today I commit to you to never again skip the genealogies of the scriptures. Why? Why? Because these genealogies are tools that the writers are using to tell a story. That there is actually one who is named Jesus, and he is the Christ. Greek for anointed. The Hebrew word for that is Messiah. That he is the son of David. That he is the son of Abraham. That he is the son of Isaac and Judah. That he is the son of Ruth. That he is the son of David. 
that this Messiah had come and his name was Jesus. It's why Mark starts his gospel like this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anytime you hear Jesus Christ, don't think Justin Ebert of the tribe of Ebert. Think Jesus who is the Christ. You can insert that the. We're going to forgive. We're going to ask God to forgive us. From now on, we can read the before we hear the word Christ in connection with Jesus. Jesus the Christ, the Son of of God. And in verse 14 and 15, after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent so that God may bless you. Repent so that you may obey him, so that things may go well for you, so that you can be my people and I can be your God. Jesus came the son of God in the line of David and Abraham as the king who had brought a kingdom. That's why Luke says his gospel like this. In chapter 1, verse 31, you, Mary, will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and he will be called, called son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. You know how I know that Jesus is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7 and it wasn't just Solomon or some other descendant of David? It's because the scriptures tell me so. The inspired scriptures tell me that Jesus is is the one in the line of David who is the Messiah, the king, who has come to deliver his people to establish the kingdom of God now and forever. As you read through, we don't have time today, as you read through Acts, if you look in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 13, and then in Acts chapter 15, over and over, the apostles begin to connect Jesus to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the story of the patriarchs, that this deliverer, this Jesus, the one you crucified, the one you killed, he has resurrected from the dead. He is the Messiah. And you and I, we all have to follow him. The only way, you Jews, the only way you Gentiles will get to experience the blessings of God, the rest of God, the kingdom of God, is if you submit your life your faith, your trust, your allegiance to King Jesus alone. The beginning of Acts tells the story of Jesus ascending, ascending to the right hand of the Father. And because of the Psalms and because of Hebrews, because of Paul's writing to the Corinthians, we know that as he ascended to the right hand of God, that that is where he is now, that he is ruling over the universe as king, awaiting the day where his enemies will be made his footstool and he will return to the earth. One of my favorite books of the Bible is the book of Revelation. And you cannot understand the book of Revelation without understanding this part of the Bible. Uh, we're really good at understanding this part of the Bible. The New Testament is, is the thing we're most comfortable with, and that makes sense. But you cannot understand this. You cannot understand the book of Revelation in particular without understanding that, the Old Testament. And it is from those images that we hear things like in Revelation chapter 5. 
That then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll in its seven seals. That God's plan can be opened. That God's plan can be revealed. That God's plan can and will be executed because there was one who God promised long ago who has come and he has conquered by his own blood. And then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb, kind of like a sacrificial ram, standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. And he had seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the world. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. Why? Because he has authority to do it. Why? Because he's worthy to be praised, because he is God in the flesh who came and dwelt among us to start the kingdom of God, who is now seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling over all of creation, and he is awaiting the day when he has been called by the Father to return, and he will judge the living and the dead. Revelation chapter 19 shows this great coming back of Jesus. And Jesus is giving, given a title that you will now understand much better. Starting in verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a fiery flame, and many crowns, much authority is on his head. And a name is given to him that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word came and dwelt among us. This Word is Jesus. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen, showing their holiness, showing their purity, showing their obedience to God. Verse 15, a sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress in fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh. And that name is King of Kings, Lord of Lords. If I had to say my sermon in a small paragraph, <laughs> it'd be this. <laughs> That was for you, Ryan. Uh, Jesus, the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords, Messiah in Christ. He is the promised son of Eve, the son of Abraham and Sarah, son of Jacob, son of Judah, son of Ruth, son of David. He is the son of God who put on flesh to bring to humanity the promised kingdom of 2 Samuel 7. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where he currently rules over all things and he will return to complete the eternal place and rest of God's people. Maybe I should say it a little smaller. Here's a more succinct version. Jesus is the promised king in the land of David. And anyone who wants to experience the eternal kingdom of God must submit their full allegiance to him. One day Jesus is going to return to this earth. And he will judge us based on one thing. Whether or not we were with him. Not just we knew some things about him, but with, if we were with him, for in his army, for in his people, for in his family, if our allegiance is fully with him. And then we'll get to drink from the river of life. We'll get to eat 
from the tree of life. We'll get to be in his presence. We'll be planted. There will be no disturbance. There'll be no more sin, no more death, no more decay. There will be no more, no more chaos, no more darkness. Because God is going to make everything new. And if you want to be part of that, if you want to experience that, the only way, the only hope you have is to trust in the cross of Jesus, to let his blood pour over you. And if that's something that you have done, that's something that you have done, if you put your faith in Jesus and let the blood of Jesus pour over you and make you cleanse and make you new, then you and I get to come to a table. You and I get to share a meal. A small meal in size, but great in significance. And this meal tells a story. This communion, this Eucharist, it tells a story. It tells a story. If we didn't have these on the stage, this would be the best visual you have of the gospel of Jesus. Every week we do this. And this is just for those who have put their faith in Jesus. If you're not somebody whose allegiance is with Jesus, the Christ, this isn't for you. Now, I have to caveat that. It could be for you. It's for anyone who is willing to submit their lives, to take up their cross daily, and to follow Jesus. If you've not done that, then this is actually an invitation to say, you are welcome to experience God's blessings. You are welcomed into the kingdom of God. You are welcomed to submit your life to King Jesus. But for those of us who have, for those of us who are starting now to experience the blessings of God and look forward to the day when we will fully get to experience the blessings of God, then we get to take and we get to eat. We get to take and drink. It is our great prayer, not that we do some kind of interesting biblical theological exercise, but that each and every one of us would submit our lives to the King. And from this day and forevermore, we would live in relationship to him, experiencing his blessings. Let us worship this king now. Now we worship in response to that good truth.